the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press player, press support. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotograph's editor, Eno Saris. And today we'll be discussing the debut of yet another top pitching prospect, as well as a draft strategy to consider for next season. And for the first time in a while, I am not going to cheat on the most interesting player alive today. We are actually going to discuss Michael Trout who is, once again, the number one search for player on Fangraphs. And so the question is, obviously, he's, I mean, he's he's off the pace in terms of fantasy stats of last year. But if you look at his WOBA, he's actually performing better than last year. But what I'm wondering is, what do you think we're going to see as a peak for Mike Trout? Because, I mean, his power in terms of home run power, is down, although his ISO is nearly identical to last year. So what's his power peak? What do you see as a, a stolen base peak? I, I would assume stolen bases, uh, we can't really expect that much better because speed is a skill of the young. But what about power? What do we see from Trout in his peak? Uh, yeah, I think that probably his stolen base peak is behind him, actually. Um, just because of how large he is and uh, uh, it looks like a linebacker out there. So um, I do think that he can stick around in the thirties for a while or at least above 25. So I think he'll be an asset in stolen bases for a while, but um, I don't think he's going to steal 50 again. Um, unless, you know, I do think that, you know, stolen bases are, are, are mainly about the attempts, you know, at, at least while your body is physically, um, you know, near its peak. I feel like it's just about how often you want to risk your fingers and, uh, you know, your various body parts uh, running around the bases like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there could be a season where he's where he sees the MVP in sight and he decides, okay, this season I'm going to take a few more ten- uh, risks on the base paths and, and go for 50 or something. So I, I feel like we could have a, a peak season in stolen bases, but average is going to stick around 30. As for uh, his power, you know, I don't, I don't see the one thing that I did see this year that I liked was that his uh, fly ball percentage just inched, you know, his batted ball profile inched a little bit towards fly ball. So um, even if his home runs for fly ball sort of took a step back, you know, if he continued that and, and hit a couple more fly balls next year, you might be able to get him close to 35 or something. I, I don't think I'm, I don't think we see a 40 40 season out of him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I didn't believe the nearly 22% home number fly ball rate that he had posted last year. And, and sure enough, it's come down to 16. I think he's more of a true talent 16% home number fly ball guy than 22. And I think, I mean, he surprised us all with his power. Nobody expected him to be a 30 home run guy immediately. I feel like most thought maybe he would eventually develop into a 30 home run guy, but certainly not his rookie year. Um, I think most probably last year expected more of a 15 to 20 home run guy. And and so he basically became what most eventually expected him to be immediately. So, I, yeah, I don't really see that much more home run upside. Maybe he's got an outside shot at, at 
peaking at 35, but I would feel a lot more comfortable projecting him to be a consistent 25 to 30 home run guy. Unless, I mean, he's got to jack up that fly ball, right? I, I think that's the one thing that you mentioned that he's got to do to really have any shot at 35 home runs. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> what do you complain about? It's like uh, second best in the game, probably, in the fantasy game. And, uh, you know, first or second in the real game. And, uh, you know, he doesn't – there's no real reason to worry. I mean, his his contact rate is great. He's got his strikeout rate below uh, – or better than average. Uh, he's really, really successful when he steals bases. He's got the triples to back up his stolen base speed. So – and then when you watch him, you're just like, oh, my God, this guy is huge. He's got a great command of the strike zone. He's got power. He's got speed. He's, he's amazing. So, um, yeah, I think uh, – I think, you know what, I think I actually, given this little bit of, of slowdown with Cabrera um, in terms of his injury and just body types and ages and stuff, you know, I think it's legitimate to discuss uh, Trout as the number one pick again next year. Oh, yeah. I'm, I think I'm taking Trout number one just because he gives you contributions in every single category and Cabrera does not give you anything in steals. Right. And, and there's always the risk, you know, that... Cabrera moves off third at some point. I mean, obviously that wouldn't be a risk at the beginning of the season in a redraft league, but, you know, it's sort of dynasty risk. And I do think that there are risks for Cabrera's health going forward. Just, you know, he's, he's a big guy, and, and he's starting to get the little nicks. Yeah, and you mentioned Trout's great stolen base success rate. For his career now, he's at about 88% uh, stolen base success rates, and that's extremely good, especially for a high uh, base dealer. It's not like he's stealing, you know, nine bases and ten attempts. He's, he's so far 86 for 98, which is extremely good. Yeah. And, and so that'll really help him stay at least in the, the 30 stolen base territory unless he loses some speed and then success rate comes down along with it. All right, let's move along to uh, a player that you posted an article on this morning. Uh, I, I think both of us, or at least I know I was, huge on Andrew Kashner earlier uh, in the preseason. And then, you know, he did not open the season in the rotation. That screwed up my draft strategy. I didn't own him in as many leagues as, that, as I had hoped. Uh, I then traded him in my 15-team labor league. I traded Andrew Kashner and Chris Archer for CC Sabathia. Feel free, you can laugh at me. Uh, Sabathia has given me like a six or seven ERA since Archer and Kashner have been solid, so that was an absolutely terrible trade. But what's happening here? Because his velocity on both his fastball and his slider are both up. Any explanation for the return of his slider? Um, you know, I... I, I... I think that it has to be a health thing. I think that he must have been feeling something in the thumb or the shoulder. And, uh, you know, I think he must have just started feeling right. I don't know if it was, like, told to him by the team. It doesn't really make sense that it was told to him by the team because he, in April he kind of threw the slider, and then in May he just stopped throwing it. So that, I don't think that's the team saying, hey, you know, don't throw that thing. Uh, because I know that teams do tell that to pitchers. Like, Jared Parker was told um, – Jared Parker was told to, to stop throwing the slider after Tommy John surgery for a while. And then, you know, he kind of worked it back in. So 
Um, I, you know, teams do tell people to do things like this, and it's possible that Cashner was told not to throw the slider for a while, and then he sort of ramped it back in, and it was slow at first, and then it got harder. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I think that he's just feeling good, and I think that he's going to get to an innings limit, uh, or he's not getting to an innings limit, he's getting to an innings maximum, uh, which is, is a good thing for him for next year to sort of build up innings. Um, and the, to me, the, I think he can really be like a Matt Cain basically. And the only thing that holds him back is that Matt Cain, one of the reasons that Matt Cain is, 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 um, is attractive is because, um, is because he, um, is a horse and Andrew Kashner with the shoulder stuff cannot be a horse. So he cannot be considered a horse at least, and at least not for two or three more years if he keeps doing it. Um, so I, I feel like uh, he's kind of a Matt Cain light, which makes him probably like a fancy number three uh, going forward. But that's pretty nice. I mean, seven seven K nine since he, since this hard slider came back, and he pairs it with ground balls and good control. So, well, I'm going to nitpick because a seven K for nine, yes, that's better than he was earlier in the season, but it's not what I expected. I mean, this is a guy who, if you watch him pitch, he throws 95 miles an hour with a hard slider. And the change, you know, it's not a great change, but he has he's got the change. And given what he's done, you know, as a reliever last year, I thought he had a real chance of striking out at least eight per nine, maybe even as high as a batter per inning. So seven per nine, yeah, better than earlier in the season. And paired with the really good ground ball rate and the better control is an overall solid skills package. I just expected a better strikeout rate. I know, I know. And I, and I, you know, it's 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 there's a couple things going on. Uh, the slider's still not as hard as it used to be. I mean, even now at 84 instead of 80, um, it's not 87 where it used to be. So when he was a reliever, he was like 97, 87, and it was just all lights out, except for maybe against lefties, and he had the show me changeup. Um, now that he's a, a starting pitcher, it's more 94, 95, and then uh, the slider's 84. And I think he actually has two sliders. I think he has a big sort of slow cur- slider and then a, and a more sharp, uh, faster slider. I think that's. I think he sort of has two of them, and he's been using the harder one more often recently. The the thing that the reason that's holding him back from more strikeouts is that his changeup is not that good. I mean, it's it's a ground ball changeup, and it's it's uh, it gets half the whiffs of a of a, of a strikeout changeup. And he, I just, I think that's going to hold him back from striking out lefties and. Um, you know, I don't know why he's not striking out righties more. Maybe he'll ramp that that slider usage up a little bit and, and do the hard slider and get it more to eight K nine or something. But yeah, I don't. It's not um, it's not ace type package. Even though he's coming off that great start and, and it looked like an ace that day, I don't think he's quite ace type uh, ace type package. Especially once you start talking about his health. Has he been hanging out with Luke Gregerson too often with those two sliders? Is that what it is? Yeah, right. Well, Gregerson, how many did you say Gregerson has? At least three? Yeah, he told me he had the two or three. And then when we tried to look into the numbers, um, you know, we we found that he might have seven. (laughs) Wow. That's pretty nuts. Yeah. So I actually, I'm beginning to think that there's a lot of that going on. And, uh, you know, A.J. Burnett told me that, he has, uh, you know, he's a knuckle curve, and then some people say, "Oh, you have a slider too." And he said, "No, no, no, I just throw my knuckle curve slower." So, um, you know, 
I think there's a lot of that. And it is interesting what it does for us as analysts is because we say, oh, he's done this or he's done that. Like, basically, I'm saying he's hard sliders back. But basically, I think he probably had it all along. It's just that he's decided now to throw the hard slider a little bit more than a soft slider, something like that. And I think a lot of times when we see that, you know, people get on the mound and, um, you know, they tell me they've been telling me in these interviews. They get on the mound and they decide, oh, God. Uh, my changeup's not working today at all. Or, uh-oh, like AJ Burnett said, uh, sometimes I throw the, the slower slider where the release point's a little bit further out, and, uh, and then I can't find the top, uh, the top knuckle curve, you know, and I'm throwing this knuckle curve out there, and I can't find my good one, and that's, that might be a bad day for me, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, um, you know, I think uh, is, is them just trying to figure it out on the mound every day. Yeah, and that kind of stuff really trips up the pitch classification systems. I think what they need is, like, slider number one, velocity of 86. Slider number two, velocity of 84. And slider number three is at 82, but gets more ground balls and has less movement. I think that would be helpful. Yeah, what I really like about that approach is that then you could say, uh, you could still say something about sliders, right? You could still group sliders one, two, and three from Cashner or whoever and say his slider does this in general. And then you, if you wanted to really dive in, you could you could start talking about slider one, two, and three. So um, I, I do like that sort of idea. And, um, you know, we may see it someday. It's, it's a little bit hard to do because at, given day to day, you know, even slider one is different, you know, from day to day, and some days you have a little bit lower velocity, or, or you can't get around the ball, or whatever. So uh, I think that there are some day to day. There's day to day noise that we would have to be make sure not to interpret a signal and make those into five sliders when it's really just one slider in five different days. So hey, why stop at slider number one? Instead, we can go Monday slider one, Tuesday <laughs> slider one. And then, yeah, then, then we've gone too far. <laughs> if we haven't heard enough criticism from the casual fan about all of our acronyms and stats. Now we're going to hear it from the casual fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Next, right now sir, Twitter, Twitter's blowing up right one now. This year. What's that? I said, hey, how's your Monday Slider 1 been performing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would really crossover appeal right there. That's right. Uh, you know, Twitter's blowing up right now. Uh, because John Paul Morosi said something about war and, and, and whether or not um, wins a public replacement makes Josh Donaldson a, an MVP candidate. So this is right on point, actually. <laughs> God. All right. Well, let's not get into that discussion because it doesn't actually end anywhere. And since we agree on this, because we're both from Fangraphs, we're going to have no debate whatsoever. So instead, we're going to talk about the Royals calling up Jordano Ventura, who Mark Hewlett ranked number three in the Royals farm system in the preseason. Of course, number one was Mo, uh, Will Myers, who's no longer on the team. So Ventura would essentially be the number two pitching prospect uh, behind Kyle Zimmer in the preseason. So uh, he's facing the Indians tonight. Obviously not exactly a streamer candidate, but what do we think of his future? What do you think of his future? Well, I love that he throws hard. You know, he's a high 90s guy. And, um, you know, that that sort of factors into all the different positives and negatives about him because he throws hard, but he's kind of slingy. And, and some people think that his uh, mechanics are off. And if you actually look at his walk rates, there's a little bit of 
an issue there. But he throws hard, so he, you know he's sexy. And you know, even if and the curveball seems like it's legit, and maybe the changeup is. Uh, it's nice that it's a curveball, not a slider. I I think that he'll he could very well have a very good beginning, and then as people sort of realize that they need to lay off and not swing as often, maybe have a, a adjustment period. What about a comparison between he and the Mariners? top prospect, Taiwan Walker. I had a chance to watch Walker's uh, final start because I did pick him up in one of my leagues, and I was impressed. I mean, he was throwing mid-90s, looked like he had a good slider, but I'm not really familiar with Ventura. Obviously, I haven't seen him pitch yet and uh, might get the chance to watch him tonight. But what have you heard? uh, Have you heard any comparisons between the two? No, I haven't, but it's it's an interesting one. Um, And... You know, in some ways, uh, Walker was fooling around with this curveball more than Ventura, so uh, you could say something about that. But, you know, I think a lot of times I have to defer to the, the lists that are out there, and, and they haven't necessarily been that close in overall lists. Um, but in terms of what's going on there, I think so. Yeah, there's some uh, some wildness a little bit, a lot of velocity, a nice curveball, and both have uh, possible change-ups that could, that could really work for them. So, um, you know, Hewlett said possibly 2-3, and I haven't really seen much that... Uh, you know, there's also the whiff of, of reliever if the changeup doesn't work and the curveball is a platoon problem. But, um, you know, I I think that they're going to give him a long shot to be a, a starter because that's a team that needs starters. So, I mean, the list that you've looked at, the minor league rankings, who's general? Is it Taiwan Walker that's generally ranked a lot higher than Ventura? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously Ventura and Taiwan Walker, they both play in nice pitchers' parks. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just looking statistically, it seems like they're relatively similar in terms of mid to high nineties velocity, really good strikeout rates, but have, have to work on the control. And, and so that's why, uh, I, I just thought of that comparison quickly. And nice to see Hewlett said that, um, that the, you know, he, the scout he talked to said that he'd made progress in cleaning up his delivery. So obviously when someone has a problem, like that, um, you know, the team's aware of it, and they're they're trying to make him help him work through it in the minor leagues. So, um, you know, I, I you know, so I wouldn't look too hard at his at his uh, his ERA this year because he's had a bad uh, batting average on balls in play, and you know, usually guys like that don't have um, that you know high three fifty seven batters. They don't normally have that. So, um, I just love that his strikeout rates have been high and. Uh, you know, if we're talking about a control problem, he's never had a walk rate over four per nine. Um, then, uh, you know, Wheeler's Zach Wheeler is exci- excites everybody, and and he's had much worse walk rates. So, uh, I think he's definitely someone to pick up if he's available, especially in dynasty type leagues. Uh, he's probably gone, but uh, I think he's a good spot starter too. All right, let's talk about Hunter Pence and a potential strategy uh, for next year and in just for any year. This is one strategy that I'm pretty sure Baseball HQ had formalized, and that's the player coming off of a disappointing season. Now, Hunter Pence didn't really – I mean, if you look at last year as a whole, it wasn't really that disappointing. He still scored uh, 87 runs, 104 RBIs, 24 home runs. It's it's hard to really classify that as disappointing. So it's really the second half. I mean, after he was traded to the Giants, he only batted 219, one steal – only seven home runs, and that really hurt his draft stock. But is there something to be said about drafting guys kind of blindly, automatically going the extra buck 
on guys coming off of disappointing seasons. Now, I think it would work better factoring age in because obviously a guy in his mid-30s is a real chance that he's just in decline. But a guy who is on the good side of 30, I feel like that's a really good strategy because more often than not, they're going to fully rebound the following year. Yeah, <clears throat> well, uh, the problem, of course, I think is aging curves, right? So if you have a guy who's falling off and it looks like he's falling, following an aging curve, then it's a little bit harder to say, okay, this guy's going to bounce back. So Hunter Pence, he's 30. You know, maybe we wrote his epitaph too soon, but if you just look at his stolen base totals, how they declined, and uh, you know how his his isolated power sort of declined from his from his mid twenties um, to to now. It was very easy to say, here's an older guy, he's post peak, and he's in a bad park, and you know this is what's going on. So um, you know, I think it's a good strategy, particularly for guys that struggled in their mid twenties, because if they've shown something and then struggled, to me that's um, you know, an adjustment period. And then, you know, I don't love to use um, monthly splits, but if, especially if a guy, let's say, is, um, you know, here's an example, Brett Lowry. Brett Lowry, you know, comes on scene, you know, has, uh, has great potential, uh, pedigree, scouts love him, uh, you know, power, speed, good strikeout rate, comes on and has a bang up, you know, rookie year, second year, not so great, injuries, um, you know, and then even this year, not so great, more injuries, but at the end of the season, he's been doing better. That's the kind of guy that I would like to take a chance on because he's still young. He had shown this promise and, you know, near the end of the season showed that he's making some, you know, he, he had a strikeout rate among 30 of 30% early in the season and, and now it's back to his normal. So, um, that's a guy that I would take a chance on Hunter Pence, you know, looking at him at 30 years old in this ballpark. Uh, and you know, to go from five stolen bases to 21 stolen bases is it, it sounds to me like a walk year. Yeah, I mean, obviously nobody could have predicted the stolen base outburst this year for Hunter Pence, and that's been a, a big part of his fantasy value rebound. And I'm not really talking about Hunter Pence and his prospects for next year. I'm just talking about look at a guy who's coming off of a somewhat disappointing year, and more than likely. He's going to rebound next year. Now, Brett Laurie is not exactly the type of player. I would consider him more of a post-hype guy. Uh, I'm really talking about more of an established veteran. And since I have the game on right now, I think B.J. Upton is a really good example. He's on the right side of 30. He's pretty much an established, very good fantasy guy. And obviously this year was a complete disaster. So he's a guy whose draft stock next year is going to be destroyed. He's going to be very cheap. Now, it'll be interesting to see where he bats in the lineup to open the year. And uh, obviously, we want to guarantee, yeah, he's a full-time center fielder. He's not going to have any ridiculous competition like a Jordan Schaefer or, or a Jose Constanza. But he's a guy where blindly, no matter where the bidding finishes next year, I can almost guarantee he's going to earn a profit. And he will end up on at least a couple of my teams next year. So, I mean, he's the guy where you would be following this strategy by drafting him. Yeah, you know, and I like how you said that he was on the right side of 30. That's something I'd be looking for. Another thing that I would look for is how massively 
the uh, draft stock changes. So, uh, and basically, I guess how bad the season was because um, you know Jason Hayward. I like Jason Hayward still, and you know he can do a bounce back, and you know, and similarly BJ Upton. But the problem is that Jason Hayward might cost me even in this sort of bounce back state. Might cost me a fourth or fifth round pick if I want to buy into it, just because you know he still has that promise. People really. Even his bad season wasn't as bad as B.J. Upton's, and there's more excuses for it, and there's injury. You know, I feel like, you know, next year Hayward will go above Upton, but, you know, Upton might be the one that goes in the final round. And then, you know, your risk is so low that I really like that. So there's all these, you know, I hate to make all these caveats and stuff, but, um, you know, I just... I think that those things are worth saying. You want to you want to think about the age because aging curves matter. Because sometimes a guy didn't have a good season because he's 33 and he's on his way out. Uh, you want to think about how badly his draft stock is going to change because you know there's always the chance that you know he was overrated at some point and um, he doesn't necessarily have all that that chance to get back. Because you know if you think about Hayward, if he doesn't steal 20 bases and he is a 270 hitter. And he's not quite a 30 homer hitter, and he's just a 25 homer hitter. Now you're talking about a guy who, you know, could bounce back to a 270, 20, or 270, 25, 5 season, which, you know, is that even worth a fourth or fifth round pick? So, um, you know, you have to you have to think about all these things. But yes, I do actually really like uh, that strategy. Yeah, and it also comes down to human nature. I mean, we have a tendency to weight recent events more than past events. And so when we see that B.J. Upton, for example, is coming off of a terrible season, then that's going to weigh heavily on his value for next year. And it shouldn't necessarily do so because we still have many years of established, really good production from a fantasy standpoint of 20, 30 seasons. So that's what fantasy players end up doing is they weigh the recent year far too highly, and that's why... This year's breakouts and career years end up becoming overvalued. And I think fantasy players would do well to not weigh the previous season as highly as they typically do. All right, let's move along to actually taking into account recency bias for the positive and looking at some recent playing time surgers because at-bats a lot of times is king, especially in deeper leagues. And uh, this morning I posted an article about a couple of guys who have gotten a lot more playing time in recent weeks. And Lucas Duda, Angel Bacan, Jose Tabata, Justin Ruggiano, my favorite sleeper in the preseason who hasn't quite worked out. Any of these guys uh, are you a big fan of over the final uh, two weeks of the season? And do you think any of them can earn, uh, like let's say, 12-team mixed league value? Uh, I think Duda in a uh, in an on base percentage league uh, for someone who needed power, it's interesting, especially if you can sit him against lefties. Um, you know the the, the speedsters uh, are very interesting because I've been talking to people in mixed leagues, uh, and and I can I think about uh, my my streaming for steals piece, and um, what I think about sort of Pagan, Tabata, Revere, uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre a little bit less, but uh, Pagan. Tabata, Revere, Eric Young, um, you know Bonifacio. I think that those guys. There's very little difference in a, in a two week um, uh, in a two week stretch for those guys. Uh, I mean, Pagan has a risk that he's not even going to steal because of his, his hamstring. But all of them are flawed players. 
none of them really have a ton of power. If Pagan has a little bit more power than the rest, he, he has more risk on it with his wheels. So if you're looking for stolen bases and you're looking among that crew and you're like, oh, you know, Bonifacio or, or, or Pagan or whatever, uh, I think that you should really just look at who the, who's catching against them. And, just, and, just since you, and since teams play, you know, three in a row, you don't have to necessarily stream every day. Um, what you can do is just look, look, okay, who's playing the Red Sox this week? Who, who's playing the Angels this weekend? I'm going to pick up whoever's the, the, the speedster that I can pick up uh, against that team. And I don't think that necessarily any of those speedsters uh, rise above that crew. You know, I, I'd say if that's who you're looking at, then just pick up whoever's against a bad catcher and, and hope they, they run that day or yeah. that week. And, of course, that kind of a strategy really works best in a daily transactions league because if you're in a weekly league, then you kind of have to look at two different catchers and then compare the that and – yeah, they might see four different catchers that week, so that's a little bit harder. Yeah, yeah. So daily transactions league, that kind of stuff is going to work better. Jose Tabata, for whatever reason, has just kind of stopped stealing bases. He only has three this year, and uh, I mean, I guess he's never really been a great, efficient base stealer like uh, like a Mike Trout. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe they just told him to stop. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, last year he stole eight and got caught twelve. In the yeah, picture. that's not what you want to see from your supposed speedster and and that's gonna be like something that your managers all right jose enough running you stink at it and you're costing our team runs or potential runs so i mean he's it's funny because he's dangerously close to being like a zero category contributor and that's not what you want from a potential pickup but he, he also is a guy that kind of contributes slightly everywhere so he's kind of on that borderline where in a deep league he can be decent but not great everywhere or or a non-zero guy everywhere warm body that's right all right let's move along to a potential breakout guy in willie peralta because he's a guy who i have a feeling is going to be named in every single preseason draft magazine and draft guide as a major sleeper slash breakout guy. And do you agree with that? Do you think he's going to be named? And do you think he has a good chance for a 2014 breakout? I mean, he's actually one of these guys that the eye test is so different from the the numbers, the peripherals. I mean, if you watch him, he's got he's got gas. He can control the fastball well. And he can make some teams look really bad. He's got two sliders, you know, just on, on right on topic for our conversation. He's got two sliders. One's a slow sort of get a strike slider, and the other is a, a wipeout get a swinging strike slider. Uh, and the changeup is not terrible. It's something to keep lefties honest. So, you know, he's got he's got everything you need, and, and velocity is always a great place to start. The problem is he can't control the slider really, and you know. For a guy that has a lot of ground balls, he gives up a lot of homers. And he doesn't pitch in a great park to, to miss, um, you know, sometimes. And, you know, he didn't really have good control of everything. So I, um, yes, I will absolutely draft him with my last pick in as many leagues as will allow me to draft him with my last pick next year, especially and I know this. the numbers don't say that spring is very important, but especially if he has a decent spring. 
I mean, he does throw his changeup a little more than Justin Masterson, but isn't he essentially a harder throwing Justin Masterson as basically a fastball slider guy? Yeah, I mean, he could be. But, you know, Masterson's like, uh, he told me that he's not even sure he throws it 0.3% of the time, like like we say. So, um, you know, uh, you know, for 5%, for, for Peralta, it's probably something like, you know, 15% to, to lefties. And that means... Um, you know that means he's actually using it. So I think that's uh, a good sign because he has he struggled versus lefties this year. A 451 xFIP versus a 368 versus righties, but at least he's got that change up there that maybe you you think he can you know make better and uh, eventually he can figure out lefties. Whereas Masterson, it feels like it would be much more difficult just not even throwing the change up at all. Yeah, and with Masterson, you also you're sure that um, he's uh, he's not going to um, he's not going to come cheap. Yeah, you know people people he had a good season he had a good season. But uh, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at his player card right now. Uh, he throws the the four seam, the sinker, and the slider about the same. Change is six percent, but if you switch it over to lefties, oh, it's only eight uh, percent. So that's interesting. Um, that is interesting. I thought he would have thrown in more, but uh, but it, you know it's still it's a little bit more than a show me eight percent. That's he's actually using it. Plus, if he has a sinker, um, you know, and a four seam and two sliders, he's got a lot of different ways he can attack a lefty. Um, but yeah, you know, the lefty thing is a big risk. Plus, the the fact that he can't really control the um, the, the slider. I'm looking here. The ball rate on the slider is is uh, out the roof. It's uh, Almost 50% balls, and uh, it looks like he can control his sinker well, um, and uh, you know he has trouble with the four seam. So, oh, actually, I was looking in the wrong place. But all his ball rates are pretty bad. But his changeup is the one that has a terrible ball rate. So he can't control that at all. He has some trouble controlling the slider. He has a real lot of trouble with the four seam, and the only pitch he really can command well is the sinker. So that's why his great ground ball rates, bad walk rates, and bad home run rates. Sounds like a real exciting pitcher. <laughs> 95 gas. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, also the good news is that his second half, his strikeout percentage, can you believe in the first half that his strikeout percentage was only about 14%? I mean, like you said with the eye test, I actually owned him in in one of my leagues earlier in the season before dropping him, and uh, I would watch him pitch, and I just it was amazing to me that he was pumping in mid to high 90s fastballs with a slider that looked pretty darn good, and yet he just wasn't striking batters out. But in the second half, that strikeout rate jumped to just over 20%, which is a really good sign. And you have to think, again, just by the eye test, that there's still some further upside in that strikeout percentage. So he still has – I mean, the, the control isn't great, but it's acceptable, and he's got a very good ground ball rate. So when you combine all those skills together, it's an intriguing skills package and uh, for next year for, for breakout potential. Yeah, and I don't, you know, with that, with the the, the, the seasonal numbers he's going to put up, he's not going to cost much. People will forget if he had a good a good little stretch. And yeah, I, I wouldn't go much past the final round pick because we've talked about all of this. Yeah. His pause. All right. What about a real surprise breakout? It's only been 32 innings, only four starts, but a 2.53 ERA for Yusmero Petit is definitely better than anybody could have expected. And I have to be honest, I thought that Petit was retired and uh, 
a full-time golfer or something because I I forgot that he even existed. Well, I mean, before he went to San Francisco, he averaged almost, or I think he averaged over two home runs per game. Which is crazy. Uh, well, his career rate right now, when you include this season, 1.7 per nine. And he's got a career 518 ERA and uh, a 139 whip. And it's pretty crazy when people are picking up in fa- him in fantasy leagues and asking about picking him up and streaming him and stuff. And it's like, what answer do I give? I'm like, this is a guy who's an extreme fly ball pitcher with a 518 career ERA. And just because he has a sub-3 ERA over 32 innings doesn't mean that he's a new pitcher. But depending on which pitch classification you want to look at, he might be a new pitcher. Uh, you're referring to the added use of uh, cutter? Yeah, I mean, he's throwing his cutter more, and both systems say he's throwing his curveball a lot more. So, and I don't know if you had a chance to check out his pitch FX curveball data, but get this. His curveball has induced a swinging strike percentage of 33%. Have you ever seen a pitch that's been that effective in the pitch effects tab? That's uh, that's pretty impressive. And it's a 19-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio in 37 plate appearances. 19-to-1 with the curveball. That's insane. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm like uh, trying to call up some numbers here real quick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. Looks like he's throwing the curve more. And um, The crazy thing is is that Cutter has actually been a, a horrible pitch for him. A tiny swinging strike percentage, more walks than strikeouts, a 976 OPS against the pitch. So, I mean, we can look. change gets whiffs, too. Yeah, well, but he doesn't really throw it much anymore. No, he doesn't. So it seems to me that his success is predicated on that curveball. Where did that pitch come from? I don't know. It got faster. It got faster recently. Maybe he started throwing it harder. I got to talk to him. Maybe I'll try to talk to him next week. You know, he's still going to have the homer risk, and I would definitely not play him much away from home until we know more about him. Yeah, I mean, his curveball has always been good. It's always had uh, a well above league average swinging strike percentage, but obviously a 33% is absolutely insane. This is literally the best pitch I've ever seen. Anytime I've ever looked at uh, pitch effects breakdowns. And obviously it's not sustainable. And what's unfortunate is that his other pitches just haven't been good. I mean, slider has a a below average swinging strike percentage. His fastball isn't good. His uh, cutter has been awful. So it's really basically comes down to for as long as he can keep up the effectiveness of that curveball, he'll be effective. And and that's kind of a, a lot to ask when your other pitches haven't been very good. So. Yeah, I mean, I just he's like he was like literally out of baseball. I mean, in 2010, he pitched 59 innings for the Mariners in AAA. In 2011, all that we have on Fangraphs is 36 innings in Mexico. <laughs> and then, for some reason, the Giants picked him up, even though they didn't need pitchers back then. Yeah. He had, that, he had an okay start. I remember seeing him at the end of 2012 for that one start. And I actually picked him up because I think that was the final day of the season start where you can kind of rack up a bunch of starts by, uh, by putting everybody on, put, starting everybody if you have one inning left. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he's always had good control, but it seems to me 
banking on that one pitch to continue its effectiveness, you're pretty much playing with fire. Yeah, that's probably what it is. It's probably just one good pitch, uh, an 88-mile-an-hour fastball, and some people sit on that one good pitch and, and even can even hit that. So. Yeah, and, and right now his home run per fly ball ratio is, is a tad above 3%. Obviously, that's going to rise. He's always been an extreme fly ball pitcher. So I just fear that one of these outings, he's going to give up three to four home runs, give up like eight runs in three innings, and then he's going to get dropped across the board, and his ownership <laughs> is going to get back to like 1%. And everybody, everything changes. <laughs> that's right. And then people are going to be like, oh, yeah, it's Yusmero Petit. Of course, this was going to happen. Silly me for picking him up, thinking that something's changed. Yeah, silly us. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, and calling us potentially in the future, silly fantasy owners, we're going to wrap things up. So join us again on Thursday for more fantasy fun on the Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>